Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good afternoon, good day, good morning. My guest today is Noelle Mora. Noelle is the clinical training coordinator for over 400 students at JFK University in Pleasant Hill, California, and also the Valor Center coordinator for 80 military service members getting their master's and doctoral degrees in the fields of psychology and law. Noelle is a former Air Force logistics officer who completed her service in 2006. She is a Veterans Path retreat attendee and is now an advocate for mental health. We're going to learn a lot more about Noelle, her time in the Air Force, her exposure to trauma, and her path to healing. And that's all here on today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. Welcome to the show, Noelle. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and as of the recording of this, uh, we're about 15 days into 2020. How's, uh, how's 2020 treating you so far? Uh, 2020 is um, throwing me some curveballs for sure. So um, Already, yeah, huh? Yeah, it's very appropriate that I'm doing this podcast. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So before we get into the questions, what I'm trying to do on every show is I'm I'm letting our listeners know what we do at Veterans Path for those who may not know, and then why specifically why we're doing the episode and then the and then the podcast writ large. So Veterans Path, we introduce veterans to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of and attendance at our retreats while simultaneously reducing the stigma around seeking mental health support. Listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Okay, that all said, we'll get into our questions. I started the show right before that with a brief bio Now, without getting into the meat and potatoes of our discussion for the show, what else would you like the audience to know about you? Well, I'm originally from the East Coast. I was born in New Jersey, Um, spent a lot of time on the East Coast growing up, Um, spent a lot of time in New York, so I'm originally an East Coast girl living in California. Um, (laughs) Transplant. Yeah, very much so. I've got two dogs. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time with in academics, um, working at the university. Uh, I spend a lot of time outdoors. I try to spend a lot of time outdoors, um, keeping my body in a good place. Um, also try to spend some time, actually find a lot of... Uh, recovering well-being and and spending time alone so um 
you know, there's so many people out here in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is really saturated with so many people, um, so many different demographics of people. Um, so there's been good groups of people that I've found out here outside of the veterans, too. But, nice. Um, yeah, I think that's that's about it. I'm not married. Uh-huh. I don't have kids. Uh, I haven't gone down that path. Um so, what kind of dogs do you have? Uh, I have a Shih Tzu and I have a like a Terrier Yorkie. All right, mm-hmm. nice. Well, per our discussions via email and text in the past, uh, I know we're gonna get real personal real quick. Uh, so I, I want to, uh, before we get there, just take a quick stop to put in a plug for our sponsors. Welcome back. Continuing my conversation here with Noel Mora former Air Force logistics officer turned clinical training coordinator. So, Noel, you served as a logistics officer in the Air Force. Where did you serve, and and how long were you in? So, I was stationed in uh, Destin, Florida, in Fort Walton Beach area at Eglin Air Force Base uh, with the 33rd Fighter Wing. Um, They had a F-15 unit there. Um, I helped those guys. Uh, We had a small office there that help to support them. Uh, Primarily, um, we did missions. Um, We did a lot of visits to Las Vegas. We did a lot of training missions with F-22s. We did a lot of support for President Bush while he was uh, in office. Um, When he would go certain places, we would go on security patrols with him. And I was there for about three years, and then I moved over to McGuire Air Force Base uh, uh, right before they ended up uh, joining with Fort Dix uh, when they did the they did a joint um, joint operation over there. But that was right before that, and I ran um what they called the Aerial Port Squadron uh, with 165 people there. Uh, air transportation specialists with C-17s. Uh, so they essentially were running uh, missions back and forth from Afghanistan, um, and we were just helping to support them logistically and getting them all their equipment and getting them everything that they need needed. Um, so I was in from 2002 until 2006, um, which was quite a bit uh, shorter than what I anticipated. I uh, was hoping that I was going to be in longer, but um, unfortunately they went through what they call the force shaping and all of us had put on captain and done all of our training. Uh, and, you know, they went through a process of uh, a significant downsizing. And um, in 2006, um, I had to get out. Um, they did what they called a racking and stacking. And so all of us got ranked. Um, and then we went to a national ranking. Um, so at the base, I did really, really well. I was ranked number two out of 25. Um, and I thought that I would make it. Uh, but then they ended up only keeping one officer out of 25 officers at the base. Wow. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that was a really big deal uh, for me. Um, That was not what I signed up for (laughs) in any way. Uh, That was really not the intention. 
Um, so what happened after that was a lot of people went into the reserves. Um, and then a lot of people were going to Afghanistan. Um, and I decided to not do that. That was not really what I was interested in, in pursuing. Um, so I just went on a different path. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was four years, and then you know I was in I was in active reserve, and you know had a few times where you know did some reserve weekends, but I was not really active after 2006. Yeah, that reserve lifestyle is tough. Yeah, uh, I know I know several of my Navy friends are are reservists and uh, and National Guardsmen and Army reservists, and being that kind of citizen soldier uh, that that's tough, or citizen serviceman uh, or woman that's that's tough. Yeah. Um, so 2006. You were not planning on getting out. Air Force goes through this shaping. How long of a heads up did you have before you were actually out? So was it six months that you had to prepare? Or was it shorter than that? Uh, it was probably about about four to four to five months. Probably about that. Wow. Yeah. Um. And the, and before that, you thought you were going to stay in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had just put on captain. Uh, all a, a bunch of us had put on captain, and um, you know, we had done, done all the training. We had done all this, you know, significant work, and um, that really was not the plan. Um, and these were really good people. You know, the people that were around me were all really solid. Um, it wasn't really an issue of performance or anything like that it was more of an issue of they just didn't want to look like they had as many numbers um i guess when i commissioned in 2002 they uh had put a lot of um they had put a, a huge wave of of people to come in and you know they have years where they let a lot of people in and then years where they right. don't um, and so I guess I was on the year that they let a lot of people in and uh, they felt like, I'm not sure if it was, I'm sure that it was a cost thing or, um, so yeah, so they drew back. Um, and that was right, uh, that was 2006, so there was a lot going on in 2006, uh, 2007, 2008, I mean, there was a lot happening and so it just, it didn't make a lot of sense. Um, but they did prepare, I will say this, um, at that time for the officers, they did prepare. Uh, they did, you know, my commander at the time was very good with allowing me to go and look for opportunities, and uh, she was very understanding. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I imagine you have to be with, like, uh, somebody who is not preparing to get out of the military, then they're suddenly given the, the notice that, hey, you're getting out in, in four or five yeah. months. You almost have to be to set them up for success. So what did your transition actually look like? I mean, what what did you do? So I was very aggressive. I was living in New Jersey at the time. And at the time, uh, the way they had it set up, uh, they set us up with several different um, companies uh, like Lucas Group and Bradley Morris, which were all recruiting right. agencies. Um, and they essentially, we would go to job hiring conferences and then we would get put in front of companies and the opportunities, you know, really popped up from there. Then it was just a matter of 
you know, do I want to stay in New Jersey? Do I want to, um, what do I want to do? You know, so it wasn't really a problem of having, not having options. It was more of just the anxiety of uh, figuring out what the real options were and whether they were something that I was really vestedly interested in doing. Um, So it was more about, um, for me, I was just trying to figure out, you know, just how, um, what I was going to do. Um, I was very happy in New Jersey. I had a lot of people working for me. Um, I had a really solid group of people. Um, I really didn't have any problems, you know, really the only issue that I had on active duty, uh, when I was in New Jersey, um, I did have an issue where we had some folks that had come back from Afghanistan, uh, and we did have some problems, uh, some pretty significant issues um, with folks coming back from Afghanistan. But overall, my my people that were working for me were really awesome, and so good. Um, yeah, I didn't have any really major issues there. So really, it was just a matter of me figuring out what was going to be the best option for me um, moving forward. So, um, which is a different challenge as opposed to having no resources and, and nothing being put in front of me. So it was, you know, a little bit, uh, I was on the, I was on the better side for sure, but I was very aggressive. I, you know, I went, um, I went to conferences in Virginia. I went to conferences uh two in Virginia. I went to one in Philadelphia. Um I I was extremely aggressive. Um and I, and I knew at that point that I didn't really know what I had available. You know, at that point, um I had the GI bill. I didn't even realize that I could use it right after cuz they gave it to us as an option because of the force shaping. Um, But I didn't even realize, you know, like things like I didn't realize that I could go on unemployment. Um, I didn't realize that, you know, so my anxiety was extremely high um, and it just didn't really, um, besides my commander, um, you know, they had us go at that time, the TAPS, development of the program was not extremely developed um you know they gave us the the one day brief but it wasn't really fully developed where they really had it developed was in the professional companies that they were giving us referrals to um right. bradley morris and yeah Lucas. yeah okay so th- they were good in that area um but in other areas um you know, maybe just in terms of like resources that were available, even through the county or the state or anything, um, that was not presented at all. Yeah, it's it's definitely come a long way. Yeah. It's it's nowhere it's nowhere near perfect, and they're continuing to improve it. Yeah. But uh, it it has come a long way. Um, where I think we're uh, lacking is that we're preparing people for jobs, but we're not really preparing people to. Uh, experience that loss of mission, that loss of purpose, that loss sure. of identity. Sure. Um, so you, uh, in, in previous email correspondence, mentioned to me that you had joined the military as a way for you to escape abuse from your family. Um, 
and now you you did join the military you did uh, or at least i believe you escaped that abuse but here you are four years later um how are you kind of facing that demon uh you joined the military to get away but now you're being told you have to leave the military how was that for you uh yeah so um yeah the primary reason i went into rtc i had been um uh, I was a freshman. I went to a state school in Pennsylvania called East Stroudsburg University. Um, and I had gone there to run track. Um, and I started looking at ROTC um, because I felt like um, I knew that I definitely didn't want to go back home. Um, I knew that um, I had still had a lot of emotions around uh, abuse that had happened to me um, from the time I was 12 until I was 15 um, when I was sexually abused. Um, And so I knew that my family environment um, was extremely toxic and I couldn't even handle the thought of me graduating college and going back home. I know a lot of people do that. And that was Mm -hmm. something that a lot of people, that's very common, but that was not even a thought that even went through my mind. Um, And I knew also that, um, you know, I did have military uh, in my family. You know, my grandmother was a nurse um, during World War II. She was a captain. And then my grim, my great uncle was a F-14 pilot. Um, and then my father, who uh, was the one that actually abused me, he was a medic. Um, and so I did have military affiliations, um, but it wasn't really something that was really um, maybe celebrated in my family. Um, it was more of uh, people had done it, but it wasn't really something that people were really um, maybe celebrating and really looking at as being something that was seen as being an asset in the family. Because our family was not really very close with a lot of parts of the family because of things that my parents were involved with. Uh, my mother had been involved with an extreme religion, uh, which created a great isolation uh, for our family. So um, the military aspect for me, um, in my sophomore year of college, I decided to go and start doing ROTC. I had a friend who had been in the Navy for eight years, and he said to me, you know, why don't we go look at this? He goes, I want to consider really? it. Yeah. and. Uh, I kind of laughed. I kind of, to be honest, I kind of laughed because I, <laughs> I was like, you know me, I'm not really, that's not my style, you know, right. um, that's not really something I'm interested in. He goes, you should really look at it. And he didn't know anything about my background or my family. So like, um, so I went and looked at it and then uh, the commander at the time, um, this was in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So I had to drive an hour and a half to the detachment from my school. So it was definitely like completely out of my way. 
Um, mm. It was not something that was convenient. Um, and I definitely, <laughs> um, so I went there, you know, I took the AFOQT, you know, I tested pretty well. Um, the commander at the t- time uh, was very interested in having females. You know, she really wanted to have uh, females in the military and represented on, on the officer side. So um, I actually initially said no, because I was really not, I wasn't, I didn't see myself, you know, like we were going to the detachment and ROTC and I didn't see myself marching. I don't see myself, you know, giving orders. I don't see myself doing any of that. Um, but really after I thought about it after a while, you know, the commander had called me a few times and, and I said, you know, this is actually, I don't have another game plan and I don't know how I would really resource myself to get out of the family scenario after college. Um, and you know what, this probably will bring me a lot of experiences that I could be extremely positive for me that I have no idea that I'm really just have no concept. Um, so really for me, it was just a matter of, I'll, I'll just take the risk. I'll, you know, I'll take the risk. This is actually a great opportunity. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be an officer and it would really give me an opportunity to get out of the area and, you know, do some things that would be great for my country. I never really even thought of myself as being somebody that serving my country would be a part of my makeup. Um, it really was not like, I really kind of at the time, like I, I was, you know, I ran track in college and, you know, I was studying public relations and, um, I love sports, you know, I, I was a huge sports fan and like, um, so the military thing was really, um, more of, I want to look at a, a better option for myself post-graduation and I want to figure out a way for me to get some leadership skills because I don't see that happening right out of college. Um, so really at the at the end of it, I really was like, there's a lot that could come out of this. And since they want me to come in and they're accepting me, um, I know there's times where they don't, um, and I know they're not accepting everyone. So I said, I think this would be a good move. And it was just really just a, a risk that I took. Um, and that was it. And and it really just, it, it really calmed me to know that I had, you know, made a decision in my sophomore year of college to uh, make a decision for myself and something that would be positive for myself, uh, regardless of what that means, you know, like, and I really put myself in a position to say, you know what, if they ask me to deploy, I'll deploy. If they ask me to go do certain things, I'll do them. It really was, I was really in a position of uh, feeling like I'd rather, you know, go defend my country than deal with some of the things that I've had to deal with in my family. And right. that, like, family dynamic is, uh, was so deeply rooted that to me, it was a very, I thought about it for a little while, but it was a pretty easy decision. Um, once I made it, um, 
once I just decided. And um, yeah, so I mean, it was it was a pretty, you know, like how do I say it? Like, you know, I have always had the stereotypical thing that females deal with that have been in the military. You know, if you were to meet me, you would say you don't look like you were someone that was in the military. Um, but you know, I was running a shop with 165 people and, you know, I was working with F-15 pilots and that's it. I mean, to me, like, you know, it doesn't really matter, you know, I got some great experiences, um, you know, did a lot of humanitarian work. Um, we did some work with Hurricane Katrina when I was in New Jersey and, um, that really made me extremely humble, you know, very humble to, you know, how people's lives can completely drastically change in a, in a heartbeat. Um, so yeah, I mean, it really, it was more of, um, just me taking a chance and I, and I'm really happy that I did. Yeah. And it completely worked out. Yeah. But then at the at the end of that four years, it's now 2006, um, was there a fear of uh, returning back home or returning back to your family dynamic when you knew that you were being forced out of the Air Force? So at that time, I was living in New Jersey, and so my family was living in Pennsylvania, and um Unfortunately, because I was living in New Jersey, I was already back into that environment. Um, So it was already existing. And so um, I was really trying to figure out a way, you know, um, even though I was having to get out, I was trying to figure out a way of, um, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to how am I going to distance myself from from certain things? Because uh, I don't know how to handle this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to handle um, even the aspect of 2006 when I think about like mental health and I think about that wasn't even a conversation. Nobody was having that right. conversation. Nobody right. was talking about, um, you know, recovery from, you know, women recovering from abuse. Uh, that was not a national conversation. Um, right. So at that time, it was just me trying to, all I needed, all I felt like was I just needed to, I just need to keep moving forward. Whatever that looks like, I don't even know what this is supposed to look like because I'm dealing with all of these emotions and I'm dealing with things that I don't even, like, don't even seem real to me. Um, So it's like kind of a, you end up kind of, like in, in my world, it was, as long as I was functioning and as long as I was producing, um, then I was okay, but I wasn't really okay. You know, it was, I mean, right. I had a job, but like my stress levels were so high, um, that, you know, um, that it really, so what did you do? Well, I ended up going to, um, New York. I worked in Manhattan. I ended up working for, I worked in sales for, um, for an elevator company called Schindler. Um, so I worked in their maintenance department. Um, that was one of the companies that ended up coming out of the, uh, the interviews that we had, that I had with Lucas Group. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I just picked it because I said to myself, I've always wanted to work in Manhattan. You know, New York City is a great place to be. Um, I can make a lot of money. And I can kind of feel like I'm still producing and I can still feel like I'm still okay despite all of this mess that is going on with my family. Um, And yeah, so I moved to Manhattan, you know, I moved to the Upper East Side, um, got that job. Um, I was there for about three years. Uh, And then we had the market crash in 2008. And in the middle of 2009, they laid off half our sales force. Wow. Um, So I've definitely gone through, you know, like I've had some successes, but I've had some like really significant, um, you know, I've had some pretty significant, like when they, when veterans kind of talk about, you know, employment being a difficult thing for them. Um, I've had good employment and then I've had these like really spikes that have, that have gone down just because of the natural cycle of, you know, how the world is turning and changing. Um, sure. So, yeah. So 2008, 2009, you're, uh, you know, half the sales force from, from the elevator company is laid off. Um, how did you end up in California? Is that when the move happened? No. How did you move from New York to California? No, I actually ended up moving. At that time, I was in a relationship with someone, and uh, I moved to Canada. Uh, him and oh, I, wow, okay. Yeah, him and I, um, we were together. We worked at the same company, and then after that happened, you know, we thought we were on the trajectory to get married and uh, went to... Canada. So I was living in Ontario. I went and got a, a NAFTA, um, uh, essentially a work visa to be able to work in Canada. So I worked for a consulting company in Canada for a couple of years. Um, and then the significant hit really was when it didn't work out uh, was when I came to California. So that was okay. in the two, end of 2010. Um, and that's when it really hit me how much, and at that time, I think I was like 31. Um, and it really hit me how much I had been impacted, you know, by abuse and how much I had been impacted by, um, just, you know, growing up in extreme religion and, uh, just being exposed to these things. And, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I moved to California. I had a, a aunt and uncle that were living in Silicon Valley. They let me stay with them um, really, just really briefly. Um, and in that time, I stayed with them for about six months. And um, I went to the VA in Palo Alto, which is has a very robust program. I was very lucky. You know, it didn't just so happen that I just landed there because I had family that lived there. Uh, It was really nothing about, you know, me looking for the best, you know, healthcare or anything like that. It was just a matter of I just landed there. And um, 
So I started going to, they had a, a PTSD clinic there for women. Nice. Um, and I worked with a couple of doctors. Uh, they're directly connected with Stanford. Um, so I went through their prolonged exposure therapy uh, program. Uh, which is their 12-week program for trauma recovery. And uh, in that program is where I, you know, ended up, um, you know, I got exposed to what they consider their gold standard of of therapy for trauma recovery. Um, And it was really hard. And uh, I know a lot of people... If I understand it correctly, that form of therapy has a very high dropout rate. Um, it's a very difficult therapy to get through, um, just because you're just you're going through the same, you go through the same event over and over. Um, so a lot of people can't handle the overwhelming um, flood of emotions that happen. Um, sure. But I got through it, um, and I did it. And I'm actually glad that I did it because it really set the foundation for, um, you know, moving forward and getting other types of care and looking at other types of care and looking at other options. Um, but I really had a mindset of, I have to do this. There isn't, I'm not in a position to, um, you know, do or act like this hasn't impacted me. Um, so I trusted that that care was the best care that I could get, um, at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm going a little off track, (laughs) No, you're golden. <laughs> but, is, yeah. uh, there's no there's no track okay. to go off of. So you you just tell us yeah. whatever you want to tell us. So uh yeah, so then I went to after I did that care, I had while I was doing that process, I had applied to go to grad school because I had the GI bill. And, and so um I was looking around at different grad schools and I found the school that I currently work at. Uh, JFK University, and they had a master's program in counseling psychology, and um, we, it had an emphasis in somatic psychology. Um, so, what, what what is that? So, somatic psychology essentially is uh, body oriented psychology. Um, it essentially studies the way in which the body responds to trauma. Uh, So you study people like Peter Levine, uh, Bill Bowen, um, a lot of the major players that are out there. uh, If I were to look at my bookcase, there's several. um, We go over books like The Relaxation Response, we go over several other, like there's a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to have to check that one out. Yeah. So, that, you know, that's all about how the physiology behind stress um, and how people respond to stress and what it does to them. So 
Um, that was a three-year program, and I applied to that program. That was a full, at that time, was a full, you know, you had to come in and do a full interview. And at that point, I was extremely vulnerable. I didn't, I didn't even really think that I was even really a candidate for grad school. I was kind of emotionally, like I'd, you know, gone through this therapy, but I didn't really feel like I was really a really strong candidate at the time. Um, I came in, I got in, um, and then I just moved forward and I just kept going. I didn't even, um, I just, I think I kind of like had a level of detachment from it's supposed to be looking like anything. Um, I think a lot of times people, when they go through any level of healing or do anything, you know, we can become really self-critical or, you know, or, you know, I wasn't supposed to do that or I shouldn't respond this way or, um, why do I have these emotions or that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, so I came to the university and I was at the university about probably nine months or so, nine months to a year. And, um, so as part of the program, you have to do 50 hours of personal psychotherapy. And okay. um, I was kind of looking for the next person that I was going to work with. So a friend of mine who had had, who was in my program with me, he had been an um, athlete in college. He went to University of Miami and was a swimmer. Um, but he had uh, Epstein-Barr, and the reason he came to grad school was uh, he decided that um, his parents couldn't figure out uh, why he was sleeping. He was sleeping for like 18 hours a day. Right. And his immune system was all over the place. And so um, I just happened to be talking to him one day, and he said, you know, I have this really great guy that I've worked with, um, but he's lives up in Reading and Reading is like two and a half hours away from my school. He's like, but this guy is phenomenal. And I said, well, you know, do you have anybody in the local area? Like, (laughs) you know, it seems like I seem to get in this thing where everything is really far away. Like I've had to come out to California to get this care. And like now the person that I'm supposed to work with is like all the way up, you know, North. And like, this seems really dramatic, you know, like, you know, like it just it, like even me talking about it right now, it sounds completely like I like crazy to re- to really, when you think about, when we think about what we're asking people to do when they're trying to get good care, you know? So anyway, so I went up to, uh, so I started going, I meet this guy, his name's Claire Troush and, you know, I started going up there and, and meeting with him. So he had been a, uh, monk at one point. He was a monk, uh, I believe it was for 10 years. And then he was a police officer after that. And then that's, not a, that's a different oh, yeah. uh, transition. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Like these people exist. This is not like I'm not making this up. 
Like, <laughs> and so then, um, <laughs> he, he, uh, he had been a cop and then he became a therapist. So he's a licensed therapist in California for like 30 years. So I was meeting him at the tail end of his career. Um, and so I started working with him and like that dynamic of a person is really what it takes for, especially for women to get through, uh, something like, you know, sexual abuse because sure. he had such a combination of, you know, combination of patience and silence and sternness. He used, you know, um, a variety of different therapeutic techniques. You know, he did a combination of biofeedback, gestalt, um, those are his primary, primary two modalities. Yeah, primary two, but um, you know, Gestalt therapy really helps with helping. Uh, if anyone's ever been a victim of, you know, of anything that's ever been traumatic, it really allows you to be able to speak to, um, speak to an individual. Um, Essentially, the way they set it up is that, you know, you're able to speak in a, um, essentially, it's called a empty chair exercise. So you take an empty mm-hmm. chair and, and with a therapist, you speak exactly to the person that abused you. Right. And, um, you know, it's really amazing and it really helps you to cleanse um, that part of you. Uh, that's been hurt. Um, so that's not anything that I would say is uh, that. And then he did this combination of, you know, he'd been a monk and then a police officer and then a therapist. And then, you know, he was doing a lot of things that, you know, just in his vast array of life experience that he was able to combine together uh, that gave me a, a real insight to, you know, essentially what healthy relationships really look like and mm-hmm. what that really means for those that have gone through abuse and that it is recoverable and that you can recover from it. Um, but it's really your job to go out and find these people. And I think I talked a little bit about this in the email, but like none of these people were in my in my next door, you know, I moved from, from East coast to California. Yeah. You know, this is not, this is a complete, um, you know, change of my life. Um, and when I think about that, like I think about, um, you know, I didn't really talk a lot about, uh, veterans path, but veterans path really was the, while I was getting my care at the VA was the first stop that, you know, I got exposed to what a retreat was. Um, and that really was the first time that, um, you know, with Lee and Chris running the retreat, you know, it really gave me, you know, exposure to, you know, this is what it feels like for someone to truly care for you and care for you in a way that is safe and, 
and care for me in a way that made me feel like I was valued. And that was happening, you know, in my early 30s. You know, that it's also a way it's also a way for you to care for yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So and I think that's important. Yeah. And also going back to the kind of the email correspondence that we had before um, in in the, the lessons that you had learned from from veterans veterans path, you mentioned resilience and resourcing. Um, what 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 do you mean by those those two together, resilience and resourcing? You know, I think that just through the path of, in some sort of way, the organization put me in the mindset. Um, I, I was at the the very first event uh, that they had in Tassajara. Um and so a lot of people kind of like when I first came to grad school, people said, "Oh, Noelle, you're really resilient," and I said, "Well, is that your nice way of?" saying like I've been through some crazy stuff like is that your like (laughs) (laughs) like is that your like nice way of saying like how did you get out of that you know um but you know the reason I put them together is that you can have a lot of fortitude and you can have a lot of what people refer to as resiliency and and literally not know how to navigate whatever the system is that you're going through, whether you're going through the VA system, whether you're going through a state program, whether you're going through even something that's private. Um, And so I feel like those two things have to come together. Um, And it it really tests people's, um, it tests their, you know, willingness and their energy levels to keep moving forward. Um, and so we always, I think sometimes it's a little taken for granted, uh, you know, if people have gone through certain things or they've gone through certain experience that we take it for granted, like how much energy it takes to look for something that is of good quality. There's mm-hmm. plenty of stuff out there that is, it's half mediocre. mediocre. It's barely, I don't even know what it is. I'm not sure even why it even exists. Um, <laughs> but Veterans Path, how do you feel about Veterans no, Path? No, you know and, what? And what <laughs> I'll say this. Lee, I distinctly remember this. Lee gave me, we were doing like a circle. We happened to be like just in a circle with a bunch of the women. And she did this one exercise where, um, she sang to all of the women and she sang to each one of us. Wow. And like my mom never sang to me, you know? So it was a very like extremely touching like that. It was not even something like that's not even, you know, that's not something you learn in grad school. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's (laughs) you know what I mean? Like that's a very basic, you know, it was extremely touching to me, you know, sure. like very beautiful way of connecting. Um, and, you know, that's not something you're going to learn in a, you know, if you go see a psychologist, you know. And so there's what was beautiful about that environment was that they just did all of these things that were not, 
you know, that were therapeutic, um, but they were therapeutic without having to call it therapy. And uh, since I had just gone through this extremely intense therapeutic environment, you know, folks out of Stanford, you know, you know, we're coming with a gold standard, you know, exposure therapy. And then I come to the retreat. It was so nice to come to an environment where, you know, it just felt like, oh, wow. You know, and it, this isn't like a traditional sit in a chair, you know, I'm the therapist, you know, like kind of that dynamic. It was a very much a group dynamic. We were outside, you know, we went on walks, we did all sorts of things that just helped to calm, essentially to calm the nervous system. Um, and, you know, and extremely calming that the area was beautiful. You know, the cabins were beautiful. Like the whole thing was just, you know, I was thinking to myself like, oh, wow, it would be amazing to stay here. you know you know but that really kind of um but that's the whole point of a retreat right the whole point of a retreat is you're giving you're giving people that sort of experience so um but yeah so i've had uh both men and women on the show and and there's obviously a difference in experiences and how we feel things and and healing journeys but but you say that there's a difference in the way that we all navigate resilience. Can you explain how you feel that uh, how we navigate resilience differs? Yeah, I think that uh, especially, you know, I run a center here at the university for, for veterans, you know, and predominantly I'm working with males. Um, you know, I, I have a good handful of females, too. Um, but yeah, I think there's significant differences. You know, I notice um, with guys, I, I see a lot of men. They, you know, are are very prideful and don't want to show their. They want to don't want to show that they have any level of weakness. Um, and so, you, I call it I call it puffy, you know, chest syndrome. You know, they they try to be try to be strong and try to. And just show show everybody that it, they can handle uh, whatever life is thrown at them. Um, but you know, at, at just a maybe a surface level, you know that works. Um, but at, at a deeper level, it may not be really working for them. Um, but it serves a purpose, and that you know they can kind of navigate life and whether that's get schoolwork done or whether they can, you know, um, I've several, several of the guys that, you know, they don't really want to talk about, you know, they don't really want to talk about all the things that have happened. They just want to put their nose down. They want to get their schoolwork done. You know, they want to, you know, they don't want to show anybody that, that they are, that they've been impacted. Um, right. Box it up and hide it away. Yeah. Completely. Um, And so, you know, females, uh, when it comes to resiliency, you know, I do have several females that are currently going to school right now that I know have had some pretty extreme experiences. And, you know, and they they have similar, you know, they have similar traits. Um, 
but you know, obviously with women, it's a lot more emotional for them. Um, but their resiliency shows up in a way that um, they, you know, women won't let uh, anything really get in the way of them. Um, their resiliency is, you know, whatever the problem is, we're going to fix the problem. And I'm not going to let you <laughs> tell me that this isn't going to be an option for me. Um, so, um, you know, they're not going to be told to take a back seat. Um, they're not going to be told that, you know, <laughs> I mean, just recently, I'm just dealing with something with students, you know, and, and they don't want to be told that, you know, they're going to have to wait, you know, they don't want to be told that they have to, you know, that there's a process. They, they want things. They want to go after what they want. Um, and so I see a lot of women doing that. I think it's, it's very admirable. Um, you know, and the, and the guys, you know, they are doing the same thing, but they're not nearly as expressive about, you know, how their emotions are impacting them. You know, when things happen, they go, okay, I'm putting my nose down. I'm not going to be expressive about it. Whereas the women are, you know, they're a lot more expressive. Um, I do have the occasional guys that are extremely expressive and that's different too. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think society is changing to where that is more acceptable for men to be expressive about their emotions, about things that they've experienced, about trauma that they've been a part of. Um, and, and it definitely, it's definitely changing, but yes, I totally see what you mean in, in the difference in how we express it and how we feel about expressing that. So going back to Veterans Path, um, have you continued to practice your practice of, of meditation since, uh, since you went to the first retreat? Um, you know, the first retreat was back in the spring of 2011. So I've gone through cycles. I go like when I was doing grad school, I was very heavily, heavily into meditation. We were doing meditation a lot. Um, I was doing it a lot with my therapist. Um, and then I went after grad school, I went back to work. Um, so I've kind of gone through like <laughs> ebbs and flows. Um, just recently I started doing, uh, one hour meditations before I go to bed. Um, my brain, I put a lot of effort out. Uh, my energy for my brain is, you know, high output during the day. So I'm really trying to get that recovery and it really helps with my sleep. Um, am I doing it every day? No, I'm not doing it every day. I'm doing it every couple days. Um, so I'm not perfect at it, uh, at all. And, you know, I think that's important too, that, you know, I do, I do a lot of walking meditation. I can say I can do walking meditation when I walk my dogs. So that's very much very therapeutic for me. Um, my dogs have been a huge part of, of me calming and just calming down. Um, for, real quick, while you're, while you're touching on that, for mm-hmm. some of our listeners, um, you know, they may be under the impression that you have, to, you have to be sitting with your eyes closed to meditate. Can you describe what you mean by walking meditation? Sure. So um, this was, that was actually a practice that we did when I was, you know, in grad school while we were learning all this content about 
people and development of people. We had certain classes that um, were body-oriented um, classes. So we had we would do certain practices like um, going in a circle and and people just walking and walking for five minutes. And um, now if people don't have other people to do it with, um, you know, it's definitely something that you can do at home. You can do it in your living room. Um, uh, you know, I know a lot of people practice. I know with Veterans Path, we, at one point we had uh, walked through the labyrinth, and that was extremely calming. Uh, we had a point where we had everyone walk through the labyrinth. Um, but, yeah, essentially it allows the body to, since so many of our emotions live in the body, the walking meditation uh, doesn't force you to feel like you have to be still. And so many people that have these traumatic experiences um, become so kinesthetic and they become so you have emotions that are living in your body. And so uh, it's actually better for people to move um, while they're doing a form of meditation. It's obviously you're not going to be walking with your eyes closed. You wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's done in a calm environment and it's done in short periods of time. It's not something that is... People have to feel like, I feel like even meditation these days has gotten like really competitive. Like, you know, <laughs> have you, you know, have you gone through a week long silent retreat? And it's like, no, I haven't. I've yeah. done my five minutes for today and that was good. And I think that's yep. important for people to know that that's not, you know, one's not better than the other. Um, right. And, and nor is going. That's not, uh, that's not a bad thing either. But yeah, because you haven't gone, that doesn't mean you can't meditate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, here's the thing, meditation portion, you know, what I would recommend is, you know, really if people can, whether it's listening to podcasts or they're listening to, uh, but getting involved with other people that are doing it, um, you know, meditation oftentimes can bring up a lot of things for people. So it's important how you're introduced to it. Um, sure. if you're introduced to it in a way that is relaxing, um, and it, you're introduced to it by people that are seasoned in it and that, you know, um, but I was really introduced to it through licensed therapists. So, um, you know, they were really trained in the meditation side, but then also really trained as, like really seasoned therapists. I'm talking people that have been licensed for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think it's, it, it does matter. It really does matter how you're introduced to it. I think people, even if they hear, Oh yeah, isn't meditation great. But if they're sitting at home in the middle of South Dakota, you know, and they've never done it, you know, it can be kind of like, okay, well, what is this going to do? You know, what is, what is this going to bring up? So um, I think it's important to know that, like, it's better. I feel personally it's better for it to be facilitated by somebody that is a licensed therapist. And people are doing that. I do know that people are doing that in different online modalities. 
Um, sure. So. I mean, this is one of them. Yeah. What you're doing right now is 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 one of them kind of opening up the awareness and then also sharing your story to kind of break down those walls. So yeah, absolutely. There's, there's lots more uh, out there now that is making mental health uh, more ubiquitous for, for, for people. Yeah. So, so we're, we're c- coming up on the uh, uh, end of our show here, Noel. Um, this has been great. Is there anything that we have not talked about that you want to make sure our audience knows or, or that we discuss? Um, you know, I would say when it comes to looking for care, um, or when it comes to, uh, even looking for education, you know, we didn't really talk about a lot of the educational process, but I know for me, education really helped, uh, with, um, the healing process, you know, by being informed by, you know, how our, you know, even early developmental you know, challenges happen to us, you know, how they impact us and how they impact our responses. Like even just through education, you know, I really became a lot more aware around how natural my responses were. Um, But, you know, I know that education, and this is not a plug for education, you know, in any way. (laughs) I mean, I think a lot of people, um, well, it's a plug for education, but not plug for education. For your no. school. <laughs> yeah, it's the education. You know, um, these days is really expensive. So you know. Yeah. You know, I I will say this, like, um, you know, the biggest thing in receiving mental health care or even in getting education is the cost, and I will say that in you know, my, even through my resiliency and resourcing, you know, through this process, um, I spent a lot of money and it cost yeah. a lot of money and, you know, veterans you're investing in yourself. probably the only, um, uh, probably one of the only resources that I did not pay for. Um, but everything else, um, the care, let's say when you think about this, the care at the VA, I did not pay for. Veterans Path, I did not pay for, but everything else um, came at a, a very nice price. Right. And um, I'm, I'm going to take that opportunity to put a plug in for Veterans Path. Okay. We, we don't charge our veterans mm-hmm. for the services that we give. Um, we don't charge them for going on the one-day retreats. We don't charge them for going on the, the rafting trips or for the, doing the, the um, uh, rock climbing walls. And, you know, everything that we do is free to the veteran. We don't pay for the trip to get to our services, but we, we cover everything. And that's all done through donors and fundraising. So mm-hmm. if you are looking to support veterans like Noel, veterans like many of the other guests that we've had on the show, that it, that can be done right on this this podcast, uh, just by hitting the the support button or by vid- visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Sorry, uh, that was just a too good of a segue to to pass up there, Noah. <laughs> <I'm glad laughs> right into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, awesome. Hey, if people wanted to reach out to you uh, to find out more about. Uh, what it is you're doing, the school or or anything for that matter, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, sure. Um, 
uh, well, let's see. You can my personal email is n o e l l e m o r r a at gmail. That's probably the best way. I'll just give you my my okay. personal one. There you go. There you go. Well, Noel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I I know you're sharing your story. It it can be tough, but um, your doing so is going to help to break down those mental health walls that that have been built up. Uh, so I very much appreciate your openness, uh, your strength, and your vulnerability. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. A pleasure. For our listeners, thank you for listening to the show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. And we are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Twitter. And I covered how you can support us uh, earlier, but just in case you missed it, check out veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.